Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface may appear ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Okay, how about this introduction? Is this actually accurate? Bill Webker is my dad. 85 years old now. Dad grew up on a farm. He taught high school. He was a guidance counselor. He coached multiple sports and he invested in farmland. He's married, he has three kids, and six grandchildren. At age 65, when he was thinking about retiring from coaching and being done, his baseball team made it to the very first state tournament trip of his career as head coach. What happened that summer, and for the next five years, was just absolutely incredible, and that's why I'm talking with my dad about this. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Well, tell me just a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up on a farm, as you mentioned. I was in, uh, went to a Catholic grade school in Ayrshire, and um, liked baseball. I mean, liked sports all the way through. Had, had one, two, three, four. Had uh, four brothers, and we played a lot of ball and everything else together. And uh, so, sports was just a big thing in my life. It was, it was a big thing for my dad. I remember we used to always, um, um, well, we'd, we'd go to baseball games around on Sunday afternoon and uh, watch the town teams play and dad would play ball and everything else with us. So and anytime we ever had a break or anything out, out in the farm, that was with regards to, the, to my brothers and so forth and that, we always, we always just got together and we always played baseball. You know, we played baseball and... Uh, Played a lot of baseball, played a little basketball. Primarily, it was baseball and that all the way through. So, when I got in, we played a lot of baseball in grade school at recess time uh, with the rest of the kids. And then we got into high school. We played a lot. Played I played a lot of high school sports night in there. And the two things we had was basketball and baseball. But I really, really liked the thing of baseball. I did a lot of pitching, played different positions and so forth. And that you know, and. Um, but anyway, I thought, well, you know, once once high school was over with, I thought, well, I was going to farm. And then I remember I was driving to Ayrshire for graduation practice. And uh, I can still remember the point where I was at. I was, I was driving in the car and, and uh, just out of the blue, just out of the blue, I had this very powerful thought, which I attribute to the Holy Spirit of, or, or God or somebody that says go to college and coach. So then after that, that's basically what I did. You know, and in fact, uh, my coach in high school, Tanner, said, well, he says, there's a good Catholic school down in Dubuque. You ought to go there. And I said, where the heck is Dubuque at? <laughs> so uh, anyway, so then I went. But all the while when I, when I was in college, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach and I wanted to coach. So. That's pretty well it. Pretty incredible. And just something I just have always kind of felt about your family is, is that everybody is intensely competitive. You have seven other brothers and sisters. There were eight of you. And it just seemed like everybody really liked sports, really liked games, just really put their heart and soul into it. Uh, it seemed like people were pretty good winners and pretty gracious losers. But But it just seemed like... Gosh, I could see my Uncle Merlin out there at age 60 taking a turn at bat, and he's just beaming from ear to ear and just enjoying himself, and then he hits the ball, and then he gets on base. 
Yeah, I remember. I remember one time when we were playing. I played a lot of town team ball when I was in uh, in college, played in the summertime. But I remember one time we were on a we were on a baseball team at Airshoe there, and I'm pretty sure at least four of us. There might have been there might have been five of us on the, on the team. I know Bobby was there, and I think Ralph was there, and Jimmy was there, and I was there. And I think Merlin might. I don't know whether he was or not, but I know there was like three, four, four, four of us for sure were on the, were on the same town team. But I played a lot of town team ball with, with different, with different uh, school, with different town teams around. I played with uh, Ayrshire, and I played with Ruffin, and I played with Webb. Those were the main three, you know, that I played. But mostly Ayrshire started a town team, so I played a quite a bit of ball with Ayrshire town team. Okay, so as a coach, um, gosh, I don't even know where to start, but what kind of a coach were you? Um, I, I think when I started out coaching, I wanted, I wanted to win. Uh, and uh, I don't know, it was, just, it was just a lot of fun that doing, but I was also one that, that uh, I wanted them to work hard and I wanted them to love the game like I did. And I just kind of felt that they did, otherwise they, they wouldn't have been there. But I was also one who uh, probably demanded quite a bit and everything else out of them because because I did want to win, you know. And I in the first couple of years I was probably kind of mellow and so forth now. But then I got into the thing of um, later on I got into a thing where I might become a little bit harder on the players. But I don't think I was ever really hard on the players. I might have been hard on one or two of them as going along, but mostly it was a thing of where. They were just a lot. The kids were just a lot of fun to be around, and you, and you coaching the best of your ability, what you had, and you. I really enjoyed doing it, and I thought they really enjoyed playing. So, that's kind of the work where I was at, you know. So, uh, it was just. It, it, and I remember teaching school. I I can honestly say I probably probably really didn't enjoy the classroom that much. Sometimes, but it was always good to be able to look at it and say, at the end of the day, good, we get to have practice, we get to play a game, and, you know, so sports was always a big thing there for that, so. Well, maybe that's why you did guidance counseling. Instead of teaching a full deck of classes every single semester, you know, you just had a different skill set or a different desire in terms of teaching and all of that. Um, okay, when it comes to coaching, this is, this is, I'm a bookworm, and I, I really was not much of an athlete. My sense as a kid was there was basically two types of coaches, and this is just me as like a 10-year-old. There's people who rant and rave and yell and scream and lose their mind, and then there's coaches who just seem reasonable. Um, how did you, that, that can't be right, how did you split up the world of coaches? Like, how did you categorize coaches? Well, I, I think they were that way. I think there were coaches who wanted to win for themselves. And later on, I think they probably wanted to win for, for the players and for the team. And that's you know, most of it was, uh, um, I, always, I always just felt coaching, coaching was a thing of the, the game was a kind of a, you know, you had all kinds of uh, different, nicks, uh, diff, different types of things in there. And you wanted to teach the kids those things, you know, the, the uh, the importance of uh, not it's kind of hard to say how I just thought it was a lot of fun and you wanted to win because I that's where I did when I when I grew up you wanted to win 
but uh, it was a thing of where you were going to teach the kids how to do this and how to do it right, and uh, because you look at uh, you, just, you just looked at various various things out there, and you could see plays, and and uh, you loved to see the plays develop, and uh, plays how they worked, and what they did with them, and so forth and that. But it was mostly just to teach them the game, and you felt that if you did teach them, you know that they you know they they would respond and. You know, and then you would win. You know, if if you uh, if you if you try to do that right. So win, winning was important. There was no doubt about that. So okay. So I, I kind of want to get to 1976. 1976, you got really sick, and you know nobody really kind of knew what was going on, and you had kidney failure out of the blue. I don't think you'd ever been sick a day in your life. And then about a month later, it, it just seemed like you mysteriously got better. And, and I know that this made a monumental impact on our family. And, and, and I feel like it changed my personality. And I'm wondering, did it change your personality? And how did that show up in coaching? Well, um, I remember that very well. I don't, I don't know whether it really, really changed my thing as far as coaching that was concerned, but... Uh, I also remember too that I went through quite a quite a bit with that because I, well, I, I guess when I was laying up in the hospital and I too I thought about coaching, and I and I always wanted to be the head coach down here. I wanted to I wanted it in basketball, be be to be the head coach in West Bend here, but uh, um, because I remember I used to have the I'd had these JV teams. And you know, I can't remember whether that was before or afterwards. I think it was I think it was afterwards now. But I was coaching a little bit before that. But uh, a lot of times um, I look at it and I and I have these JV teams and and we'd win. I remember we had a couple of undefeated seasons now. And I used to sit there and I think you know that if I was head coach, I could take these kids and we could do the same thing and we could go to state tournament and so forth now. But I couldn't get the job down here in basketball not to do that. But I remember right after when I was sick like that, I went, when I was up there, I wanted to head job in, in basketball, uh, in, uh, I mean in baseball and basketball not down here. But uh, I also realized afterwards that, that, that God's plan was that I should not have it because I don't think I would have been able to handle it because I remember I went through a, Really, a kind of a psychological thing of the with the illness. It was a thing of you know being sick, and now you got to get you got to get sicker in order to die. And I didn't get that, so I figured that was going to happen. And so it was it was tough to even just to go to school and, and uh, do the main thing of job, let alone become the head coach. And that. so God took care of that. I was still I was still the assistant coach and that down here in basketball and that, but and in baseball. That was kind of an off and on thing, and that. But I don't, I don't know whether the sickness actually changed my thing as far as coaching is concerned, because that was the coaching part was always the fun part, and it was coaching that kept me in school and kept me in the in the classroom and, and kept me doing that line of work. But I always felt privileged not to be the coach. I remember one day I was walking down the street here in Ayrshire. I got down there, and about halfway downtown, I just thought, hmm, this town right here, I'm the head baseball coach here, nobody else is, I am. So. That's cool. So That's cool. cool. I remember that. 
So, so okay, so I mean, as tough as that year was on, well, on the family and on, on you, and I, I guess I'm not adequately just expressing, but I mean, this was maybe a, a near-death experience, um, but I guess what I'm hearing is coaching was the fun part. Coaching was like the bright spot. It was the stress relief. It was the ray of sunshine in a, in, in otherwise a situation where you're just kind of asking, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. I was healthy as a horse. And then coming out of it, you were healthy as a horse. So, so it was just like getting struck by lightning, really. But then, but then coaching was the good part. Right. Coaching's always been a kind of good part of it. Okay. Okay. Well, that's going to be interesting because I have some questions about how stressful coaching could be later. <laughs> and I know a few coaches that I would have to describe as stressed out of their minds. So I, I want to ask you about that a little bit later. Um, now, eventually, you did stop coaching at West Bend High School, which is where I grew up and where you've lived since 1967. Where did you go after West Bend High School? Well, uh, uh, when, I, when I stopped coaching in West Bend High School, I, I umpired for a couple of years. I was doing a little bit of that now, but it was about the year when I was going to quit in high school in West Bend is when... I got the telephone call from Granville Spalding the, the following year to come to go over, go over there and coach over there, and I was pretty well stressed out here in West Bend. That so then I went over there and talked to them. They would have offered me the job and so forth, but I just thought I'm not ready for all this here. So I said, No, I I, I cannot do this. So anyway, so I I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But then later on, uh, the next year. The job opened up again, but they hired they had hired somebody else. So then the following year, it opened up again, and I remember going upstairs, and uh, and I was going I went to bed, and I remember I laid I was kneeling down by by the bed, and I said, "Dear God, if they want me to come over to Granville, they're gonna have to call me." And a couple of days later, the telephone rang again, and this was from Granville. And then I went over there, and then I, and then I, that was about nineteen. Um, Ninety. It was about ninety-two. Yeah, about ninety-two in there, and so then I took the assistant job over at Granville, and that year there we went to the state tournament, first year. That was ninety-two, and Bob Gurink was head coach, and I was the assistant coach. The funny part about that was, we were we were both going to get fired over at Granville because. We got beat in the Spalding tournament. We lost the first two ball games, so we were out of the Spalding tournament, and people over there were just kind of, oh, that's where their school and everything else was, and all the baseball stuff and all that. So they were going to look for somebody else. Well, so they hired, they hired somebody else, a teacher, a principal to the school, and this principal was, was uh, with the idea that he was going to be the head coach next year. Well, lo and behold, we got hot in the tournament, ended up in the state tournament that year. And when we ended up in the state tournament, then they were figuring out ways not to fire us and not, and not to keep that and not to let that other guy there become the head coach and so forth. And that's no. So that was back. That was back in 92. That was an interesting tale of that, of that first season over at Granville and so forth. And that's Wait, so. did you say he was the assistant principal? The, the guy that they were going to replace you two with? No, he was going to be the new high school principal. Oh. They hired him with the idea that he was going to be the... Uh, coach. He was going to be the head coach because we lost the first two games in the Swallowing Tournament, and they thought, 
these guys aren't any good. They don't know anything about coasts and so forth. Now it's no so they were going to get rid of Bob Gurney, get rid of me and so forth. Well, then after, after the season was over with and the district tournament started, and away we went. So he had to console himself with just being the principal, principal of the school. Right, right. He was not going to be the coach. Did he feel ripped off? I don't know. I don't know how he felt. I guess who cares? You guys right. made the state. But we made the state. Well, we were runner-up in the state, too. We got beat by Key of Lansing that. You know, and plus we had everybody back next year. Oh, my gosh. Because these kids were brought all juniors. Loaded, loaded for bear the yeah. next year. That's right. Okay. Um, so... You were offered the top job at Granville, I think, three times. Well, I was offered there. I was offered it the first time. And surprisingly enough, the first year when I turned it down, that was in 1990. Uh, no, it was there. It was out in 19. Yeah. It, no, I think it was 19, might have been 1989 or somewhere. It was right around that, that year there. Because. Uh, <coughs> Dave Hine was a senior in high school that year, and so I and I told him I said, "Can so?" But they end up hiring this other guy. Well, they went to the state tournament that year. They went to the state tournament that year and won the state title. And Dave Hine was pitching, but I could have been the head coach that year. And I always kept telling, I told Dave and the rest of them over there, I said, "You know that it's a good thing you didn't get me because I said I flubbed it all up. You would have never won the state title." Huh. That's but, pretty uh, good. So, but why turn it down three times and then accept it when you're 65? Well, because I accepted it as a, as a assistant coach because, well, I, I, figured, I figured God wanted me to go with him because, like I said, when I, when I went to bed that one night, and Colleen says, you whatever. And anyway, I went to bed that night and I knelt down with bed and I said, I said to, basically said to God in a kind of errant way, if they want me, let them call me. And a couple of days later, they called. And so I thought, okay. So I went over there and talked to them. But then Bob Gurink was there, and he was, they, they were hiring him as a head coach. They were going to hire me as assistant coach. So then I said, okay, I'll go ahead. I'll take it. And I remember when we had our first practice over there, I got in the car, and I was driving over to Granville, and I got over by Paulina, and I turned the corner, turned the corner to go in there, and I thought, what the heck am I doing this for? I really did. What, and, I, and it was just like God said to me, for love and trust. Huh. Wow. Love and trust. So we got over there, and of course I had to learn all these kids' names and everything else, and so forth, and I just know. So then I was the assistant coach, and Bob Gurnick was the head coach. That was the first year in 92, see, and I was still teaching school down here, but then we went to the state tournament and were runner-ups and so forth. Well, and then you did the assistant coach for about eight years, and then at the age of 65, you take the head coach job. Right. And, and I just remember, so you're 65, and we're maybe, I don't know, about a week out before tournaments and things like that are going to start. And I remember you saying to me at the time, you know, maybe rhetorically, what am I doing out here? There's a lot of guys my age, 65, who are in a rocking chair someplace, so I just would really love to hear about the year 2000. Well, the year is how, is how that happened was, first of all, Bob Goring quit in about 80, in about 88. No, he, he, he quit in about 98 and he was, uh, when he was done, or 99. Well, then in 99, 
they hired this other guy over there, which was uh, junior staff, Graf, and uh, he was a head coach and I was still the assistant coach, which was what I wanted and so forth. And well, then anyway, he left. He left, so then they, they were going to, I did not want the head coaching job, I really didn't. And uh, so then they were going to hire this guy from Lamar's, Galen, whatever, but then he turned it down, he wouldn't take us. So then I, I just thought, well, Colleen thought too, so why don't you just take the head job? Because they mentioned to me. So um, anyway, I thought about that and I thought, well, I know these kids because I had them as juniors, as freshmen and sophomores, had them all the way through, so I know, I know basically every one of these kids, so I know them because I coach them and so forth. And I, so yeah, I'd take the head job, I'd take the head coaching job and so forth. And I, so I did, but I remember, I remember um, um, Ellsbacker saying to me, he said, you're gonna have to spend a lot more time over here and you're gonna have to do a lot more than just being the assistant. Of course, I knew that because I'd been the head coach and everything else before. So anyway, so I did. I, uh, I took the head job and went over there and then they hired uh, Dave Hine too as, as, one, as one of the assistants. And um, so then I figured out what I went to, or I had always been going to baseball clinics, but like I said, I knew these kids and I knew what we had done before. So then I was gonna do all this stuff here and and Dave had some ideas, not you know, but I pretty well set up the schedule on that, what we were gonna do every day at practice and how we were gonna run this for 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and pitching staff and you know, and getting the kids to throw in the gym and get up to 50 pitches and all that kind of stuff, statistic-wise and so on. That. So we were gonna do that. But I also knew that when I looked at that team that we had, I knew we had good ball players and we had, we had a good team. We had a good team in that, so. Well, you won the so, state title that year. Was right. that a surprise to you that that was going to happen? You know, you know, winning the state title that year was one of the easiest things that ever happened. Because it, it uh, yeah, once once the tournament started, you know, I mean, we went we went through, we won the first ball game, won the second game in Hatchinooka. We knew these kids, these kids and everything else a little bit. We knew the teams we were playing. But we had to play Lorenz Marathon, and that game was played on a, one of the poorest baseball fields around. I don't like to say that, but it was. They, and they had it down at Peterson. Well, they had, they had like a picket fence for the outfield. You know, it was nothing really solid, and the dugouts were very close to the field and so forth and so on. That. But we had, so we played Lorenz, and they had a good ball club, and we were trailing. I remember my mouth was really caught and dry. And, that was, and uh, we got to about the sixth inning or somewhere in there. Anyway, they had this real good pitcher who had pitched a couple of games before, so they had this other guy out there pitching, and they were going to bring this guy in. And uh, so anyway, but Kelly Roder, I think, yeah, Kelly Roder was up to bat. And, uh, well, they left him pitch to one more guy. Well, Kelly Roder hit a shot to right center field. If the second baseman would have been over about two yards further, he'd probably caught the ball. But anyway, hit one to the fence, out to the fence out there, two runs scored and we went ahead. Well then in the last inning we held him and, and so forth. So then we won that ball game there. That was the district finals. Then the next game was South State and we went up to Bancroft to play. 
and we played TR. And of course, that's up, that's up in my area where we live, it was up in Bancroft from West Bend now. So we get over there, and that game was, they were telling how good this, how, you know, how good TR and everything else was. Well, I remember we were playing away and, uh, and uh, Alex Boudin was pitching. Alex pitched that ball game there, and uh, we were ahead like 10 to nothing. <laughs> you know, and uh, we got we got ahead. They said they were really fast. First got the bat for them. Said he's really fast. Could hit, could uh, do all sorts of things, steal bases and that. So they hit a ground ball down shortstop, and Lee Meese picked the ball up, threw over first base. He was out. So we got out of that, and you know, and then we scored a bunch of runs and so forth. And here we got to about the sixth inning, and we had the uh, we had the tenth run on third base. And I said to Dave Fish, I said. Whenever you score, we're going to go to the state tournament. Everybody's going to come out and jump on you, <laughs> so forth. Well, then he did. He scored, and everybody come out because the game was over. We won that game like 11 to 1, so forth. And then that put us in the state tournament. And then once we got to the state tournament, that was a, that was a breeze because we won the first game. We played trainer. Trainer was, was um, I remember, they were, they were, we were visitors. And uh, so we were, t we were team that batted first, and um, when Trainer got up the bat, we were ahead ten to nothing. We yep. scored ten runs in the first inning, and they hadn't even batted yet. Oh my gosh! So then we ended up winning that game in five innings, and then uh, and then the coach of Linville Sully said, "Well, what you did to Trainer, they'll never do to us." Well, the next day we beat them, I think, fifteen to. 15 to 2 or something like that. Wow. And then, then the state championship game was against Key of Lansing. And uh, what's memorable about that one was they knocked off Mason City Newman, which was a close ball game. And we played Key of Lansing, and Lansing was ranked number one. And uh, we were unranked. And uh, I remember I remember in that ball game there before before the game even started, Schultz walks up to me and he says, take it easy on us. Yeah, so yeah. Schultz was what the winningest coach in, yeah. this, in the history of Iowa, or something ridiculous. He's the winningest coach in high school history. High school history in the United States. Holy cow! Not in the state, in the high school. The winningest coach in American history. Right. <laughs> he says, "Take in it easy school. on us." They said, "He said, take it easy on us." And I said, "Yeah, right." Huh. You know, and he's ranked number one, seed at number one, and we end up winning that ball game seven to two. It was a pretty incredible game. I was there, and Mom actually started crying in the middle of it, and it was just amazing. And then that night, we were watching the news, and the newscaster said if the rankings meant anything, Granville would have been watching the game from the stands. But you won. Yeah, you won I the remember, whole thing. I remember that. Uh, I remember that game really well because in the last inning, last inning, first guy to bat made out, and next guy hits a ground ball down to third base, and. Matt Reichley picks the ball up, and I couldn't really see the play because I think some kid got in front of me. And he threw the ball over the first place, bang, bang, play, and he called him out. And anyway, the next guy got, got on base, next guy got on base. So they had two runners on base, and I thought, if they lower the bases and this guy hits a grand slam, we're still ahead by one run. But then the guy hits a fly ball to right field, and he hits the raw ball to right field. Eric Liss is out there, and I thought to myself, it's not deep enough. And Eric Liss come running in, made the catch, and Horky said, I knew right away he was going to catch it. He started running to the mound right away. Well, that's so, great. So that big pile up there, so forth, and that's so.
I was there. I remember. Yeah. Well, okay. So how about 2001 then? 2001, the toughest game we had there was um, going to the state tournament. We played, well, we played this uh, Martinsdale, not Martinsdale, but we played, um, uh, what was that team? It was down in Southern Iowa. And they had this one kid who was an eighth grader, but he looked like he was about 20 years old. Because Mont Damien, Mont Damien is who it was. And uh, we played them in the first game in the district tournament, and uh, they went ahead, and we ended up we ended up winning that ball game there. Uh, Kelly Roder and I was gone because this was uh, uh, Bowden, and uh, anyway, we ended up winning that ball game. I think like four to one. Then the next the next toughest game was, and that uh, whole bunch was was um, was Central. Um, um, Oh, Central Rock Rapids. It was Rock Rapids up there, and we we went up. I went up and scouted them, and they looked absolutely terrible. And this pitcher out there, he, he looked like he wasn't even any good or anything like that. He was going to start against us because he was so nothing but curveballs, all this kind of jazz. And up there, and I thought we won't have any problem with this guy. Well, this guy comes out there, and my gosh, he was tough as rocks. I think we end up winning like one to nothing or two to one, oh, something like that. And I remember their coach came in afterwards. He said, tremendous ball game. We gave you everything we got and so forth. And that's, you know, I said, hope you go all the way. So anyway, that was, that was Rock Central, um, Ryan Rock Rabbit. He was, he was a good coach. He was a nice guy. And then, uh, um, anyway, so then we, then we got into the state tournament that year. That one was, was pretty easy too. We, we played Central Dallas. Uh, uh, Central from down Southern Iowa, and we beat them. That was that was a funny game, one of one because uh, Schuver pitched it, Dan Schuver pitched it, and uh, he had first three innings he pitched perfect balls, three up, three down. When he faced like nine batters, the fourth inning. They put like 10 guys up to bat. There was a couple of errors in the ball game there and they scored a few runs. I think they scored two or three and they put up, and in the last three innings, it was perfect ball again. He faced nine batters. So it was, it was six innings, a perfect ball, and one in right in between. But so all in fairness to him, there was a couple of errors and everything else in there. And we won that. And then they're, they're one of their players said after the game or some deal on the thing says, they said they weren't that tough. <laughs> but anyway, they lost. But it, the no, losers I, said that? The losers yeah. said about you guys yeah. that you weren't that yeah, tough? Yeah, they weren't that tough. They were lucky or whatever. Well, I guess you can tell yourself what you yeah. want to tell yourself. Yeah. Anyway, that was. And then uh, the championship game again was against Key of Lansing. And Alex Putin pitched that ball game. He threw 79 pitches. He beat them five to nothing, threw a one hitter. You know, he had nine strikeouts. You know, 79 pitches and nine strikeouts. There's 27 pitches right away just for yeah. the nine strikeouts. So he pitched the whale of the game. And uh, that was, you know, we won that one there. So that was a double no-hitter back-to-back. And I remember sitting in the dugout after the game was over with and kind of looking ahead there. No, that was first looking ahead, and I thought, boy, that, that guy up in North Kasuth up there, they won two of these in a row. Wow. <coughs> well, then the next year we won ours, so that was two in a row, too. Yeah. So, 
Two in a row. Yeah. Well, okay. And so then what <coughs> happened after that was there was a near miss in 2002 in terms of the state tournament. Yeah, we got beaten self-state finals by uh, Stone Lake St. Mary's, and that was they had this Eric Wodercamp as a kid who could throw 90-some miles an hour. Yeah. And, <coughs> and he nearly, I don't know, how far did Wodercamper go with his baseball career? The last I heard he was playing, well, he... He got signed by the New York Yankees, and I think he made it up double-A ball. The last thing I've heard about him, I read in, read a book and thing, read a story in Iowa, Iowa some whatever, some magazine sitting in the doctor's office. He was playing for some team out in Formosa, I think. Formosa, wow, yeah. holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So you got beat by a guy who's in Taiwan right now. Oh, yeah, he was, yeah, he was, uh, he was a good pitcher. But Matt Reichley could really hit that guy, though. We, we played them in, uh, in the regular season game, Matt Reichley. And Matt Reichley was my third baseman. He was one of the best hitters I've ever seen. And uh, first inning, two guys come up to bat. I think Walter Cameron threw about three pitches to each one of those. He had two strikeouts, just like that. Reichley come up to bat. First pitch threw in there, boom, home run. Hit a home run off him. And next time he goes around, nothing happened. Next eight batters, whatever. Next time Riley come up to bat, first pitch, boom, home run over the center field fence or whatever. I told you this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next time he come up to bat, first pitch was a curveball. It wasn't a fastball. Could he hit that? We, we ended up got another base hit off him. Okay. Not yeah. too much trouble with the curve. No, he was just, Matt Riley. But I remember when he hit the first home run, Eric Wolverine was out there like, gee. <laughs> when he hit the second one, it was like, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> striking out everybody else yeah, except for Matt every, Reichley. Striking everybody out, right? Someone back, boom, home run. The, the cool thing for me uh, with a lot of those players from that era was just, I guess, various personality traits, but also athletic traits. Like Alex Budin was the kid who could throw 79 pitches in the state tournament and really didn't have much of a fastball, like a 79-mile-an-hour fastball, but he had pinpoint control and he remembered every pitch, and he was a deceptive pitcher. So people just never knew what he was going to do. Is he going to do a changeup? Is he going to do a curve? Is he going to do a sneaky fastball? And he could put the ball within like a square inch of where he wanted it to be. And so he would just strike out batter after batter after batter. I just, you just had any number of personalities. Reichley, I think, batted 15 for 19 in the state tournament, which yeah, is he, better he, than he, 750. Yeah, he was way up to his bat in 700. But, you know, getting back to that second year when we won the state title, the most important game in that whole thing was the one against Remsen St. Mary's. We played Remsen St. Mary's, and, and it was uh, the district finals, and that game was played in Granville over there. And there were people there from all over. They were, they were out in the cornfields and out all the way around the fence, and, all the way around the fence and everything else, watching that. And... Um, but uh, and, and Remsen St. Mary's had a tremendous baseball team because we had uh, we had five losses that year and they gave us three of them, you know. And but but all the while I never I never threw Alex against him. Right. Okay. I remember this is actually a good story and and I think this would really require humility on the part of the coach, but also on the part of the players because, I, well, I, you know, I guess I should probably just let you tell the story, but you intentionally. Oh, took yeah. took three losses to this team so that you could beat them. Tried to, yeah, in the district thing. 
not memorable because it, and the games were close. Every one was like two to one, four to three to two, whatever like that, you know. But <coughs> I was not gonna I was not gonna let them see Alex, you know, because I knew we were gonna, we were probably running to them in a district tournament. And every year when I was there, the underlying goal was when the first medal was we're gonna go get to the state tournament. We're gonna go to the state tournament. So anyway, <coughs> excuse me. So we're playing um, Rams and St. Mary's, and I remember Alex sitting in the dugout before the game started. He's sitting in the dugout, and his, his knees are just going up and down, up and down. And he was just kind of nervous there. You could see him and so forth. And, and you know, and the surprising thing about that whole game is, uh, is the first inning, which I thought was really, really classic. Because the first inning, is it working? Yeah, I think so. In, in, the, in the first inning, they put three guys on the bat, and they put the first two guys up the bat, they put them on base. You know, so now they got two runners on base and nobody out, and they only put three guys up the bat that inning. Uh, they were in first and second, excuse <coughs> me, and the guy tried to, the, the guy tried to steal second and third, and instead of throwing for the guy third base, Matt Gallagher threw the ball down to second, picked off the guy going into second base. So that was one out. And then there was a little bit of a pass ball that got back to the umpire, probably rolled about eight feet away or probably probably about five yards away from the from the catch thing. And the kids on third tried to score. And uh, Gallagher picked up the ball, flipped it to uh, Alex Boone, and he tagged the kid kind of sliding into home. And next guy made out. Well, then we end up when they had one to nothing, then we got another couple of runs, a couple of innings later, or whatever, so forth. But end up winning that ball game, and I can still remember, I can still see that playing this day. The last part of that game was had two outs and guys fly ball left field, and Dean Meese and shortstop puts up his finger out, sort of puts up his fingers. We're number one. <laughs> That's great. And uh, and when we lost the set, when we lost one of the ball games to Rams and St. Mary's. I remember Luke Horky in the dugout when we had afterwards when we had our old conference. We were down right field line talking, and, and Luke Horky says, "That's all right, but he said we'll win the big one," which we did, which was that district, which was that district championship. That just takes. I'm just amazed. I just think that takes real humility. Did people? Did you get any flack from the general public in terms of, hey, you lost those first three games? How come you never threw your best pitcher against them during the first three games? No. In fact, one guy. In fact, Lou Corky's dad said to me afterwards, this was this was a couple of years later, quite a few years later. He said to me, he said, that was really a smart move. You held your pitcher back for the big one, whatever. Right. Right, right, right. Well, maybe the public knew. Maybe the oh, public yeah. figured out what you were doing, yeah, that Horky, you were... Yeah, Horky really did. I mean, because uh, he played a lot of ball himself, and he was good. Now, but he says, yeah, he said, well, he said, you're the one I did that. I said, I know. Yeah, withholding the best one. <coughs> yep. I kind of want to get into your attitudes and philosophy. Um, just how bad does losing feel? Well, it's kind of an empty feeling, you know, but... Um, you know, whenever, whenever it, the first couple of years, if you lose, you know, it's kind of like, well, um, you, just, you, you don't feel right, but you feel like, well, maybe they were a bit better ball club, whatever. It's just, it's just a bad feeling that, but when you win, it's a, 
very exuberating and good and so forth, that's no. But you also learn afterwards that if you go out there and your kids are really ready to play, you know, and you, you teach them well and you think they know it all and, and you give them a job to do and so forth and that, you know, if you lose, you sit there and you say, well, I guess they had a better, better ball club than you did that day there. And that. But, uh, but personally, at, at first, you know, losing was always kind of hard because you, you always expected to win and you wanted to win. And so that's what it was all about. You pretty much expected to win. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You expect to win. You figure, go out there and do your job and you, you know, you, you, you taught the kids and you want them to do what they're what they know how to do and and so you just you know I, I also feel that in losing a lot of times you can look you can look back on a game and this is what you always try to tell the kids look at if you lost it was it was pretty easy because you could say well we lost it do we lost this in the first inning we lost this with this play here we lost it because we made this mistake and that over here. And you could do that better if you lost, but if you won, you also had to do that too because otherwise, then, then the kids, they just, they just forget about all the mistakes that, that they made and so forth and could sit there and say, we won. Right, winning covers up a lot of sloppiness That's and right. a lot of mistakes. You That's can right. make if you make ten errors and you win, then people yeah. just think those ten errors don't count. Yeah, it just said you know that's just part of the game, you know. But if you lose, you can say we lost that ball game in the third inning with the second guy up to bat, and you can specify why. Right. I, yeah. I feel like we're going to kind of get into this later a little bit, but I, I feel like this is a major thing that's missing from a lot of life, is that people are not getting feedback, or people are maybe ignoring feedback. Life is a master teacher, um, and that feedback will tell you exactly where that error oh, yeah. hit. And it's just good to know, hey, what are my mistakes? And maybe I could not do quite so many mistakes the next you time. You know, that, that can also teach you a lot in life, too, because you can go along and you can go along and say, my life, is, <coughs> my life is not in very good shape. It's not going very well and so forth. And, that's, you know, and you look at it and you say, this part here is wrong. This, you know, I need to change this thing here and then make a commitment and make that change and that and do it. And you do that all. You can do that in sports and everything else, real, real good. You know, to keep a calm and a cool head. You know, if you can do that throughout life, and not let your emotions dictate and run away with you, and you know, you can, you can uh, balance things out well. I, I must, anyway, you can make changes that are good because you say, well, I, from my mistakes I made back here, we'll have to change all that. See, and you do that, you, you can do that in sports, you can also do that in life, too. Yeah. Well, okay, one of our mutual friends said that coaching is addictive, and that coaching would be like being on drugs. He was a coach. He said the highs are just ridiculously high, and the lows are just, you know, you just feel apocalyptic. Is coaching addictive? Well, I, I, I think that... Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think it, it's a it's a way of life, and you know, it's a it's a thing that can really be a, a, a challenge, but it also is very re rewarding, you know, because it's very nice to be to be around uh, 
kids, it's very nice to to uh, see them grow and entertainment and uh, develop and all that kind of stuff. So in a way, that's good because you know if you're meant to do that and you do it, once you're done, you have to try and and learn other things or be satisfied and do something else. I remember when I when I got all done coaching my last year coaching the head coach down here at uh, London St. Mary's, you know, he said to me, I said, you're going to miss this. And I thought, well, maybe I will miss it, and that, but I was also not ready to be done that. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, it, it was it was fun and it was a way of life, and you look back on it and you can still, every once in a while, it's kind of nice to run into one of your former ball players and, you know, and, see what they're doing a little bit of history reminisce yeah okay but, yeah, but you know it was it was also very rewarding too because you say the talents and gifts God gave you the talents and gifts and have to use it and you did it and so forth and I remember there was time when we won the state title I'd be riding I'd be driving someplace all by myself and I'd be sitting in the car and I'd sit there and say gosh in the whole state of Iowa we had the best team <laughs> yeah. We have the best team. We're the number one team in the state, you know, so far and that. So that's awesome. That was that was always a good. That was, good. and it's still nice to to do that. Because even even Keller Rota one time wrote me a letter and he said, you know, he said, we won the state title all this high jazz. And he said, and they can never take that away from us. You know, I, I remember reading a story about somebody who came in first with something in the Olympics. And uh, he just basically said words to the effect of, there's only one of me. And what that means or what I take away from that, he said, I, I can't describe. I, I don't have the words to tell you why I care, but this is, there's one of me. There's one of me. You know, right. There's another thing there, too, and Corey Goodchild mentioned this, but it's very true. He said, "Whenever you go, <coughs> like you win, the, you win the state title, and you're moving on." I think he said, "He said after you win it, it's like okay, it's over with." But he said, "The whole thing going through is it's the thrill of the chase." Yeah, yeah. The thrill of the chase, that you know. So you just uh, it takes months. It yeah, could take you years. Know, the kid, well, the kids start out. You know, I remember Kelly Roderman when the first year went to the state tournament. He said, "It's been 11 years since they've been to the state tournament." And I said to Kelly, I said, some teams never make it. That's right. You know, but, you know, and, uh, but it's a thrill of the chase. And you get in there, yeah, one this one, one this one. But, uh, okay, so a little bit of advice for maybe some high school athletes. What do you think it takes to become an extraordinary high school athlete? Well, you, you got, you got to put in the time. You have to practice. You got to be dedicated. And, you, and the other thing is you got to believe. you got to believe the job that you have, that you have to try and be the best you can at that. You know, this, the, the, the thing I used to always try to tell the kids, too, that it's, uh, it's a thing of uh, whatever job you have, learn that job and do it. In other words, if you're a shortstop, learn the job of a shortstop. If you're a first baseman, learn the job of that. And then do that to the best of your ability, so that and, and you got to practice that, and you got to try and cover every every phase. Now, for example, uh, I remember when when we when we won that ball game against Lorenz in uh, in the district tournament the first year. 
the guy, one guy in the ninth inning or in the seventh inning, he hits a little flare over first base. And um, Lou Corky goes back, and he, the right fielder could have never got to him. But Lou Corky, the first baseman, went back. He made a tremendous play on that. It was a little, little blooper so far. He made a tremendous play on the thing and caught the ball. And I thought right away, we got to put that in as a practice. So every day at practice, we put those little bloopers in where they'd throw them up, you know, and they'd, they'd have to go back and, you know, practice catching those so that, so that they became routine. And so a lot of times you, you look at, you look at situations like that and you say, this is a routine play. Well, it might be a routine play, but you might have to practice that 15, 20 times every day, mm. that one thing. So you put that in as part of the mechanics. So you try to cover every phase of the game that you can think of and something happens in the game that you didn't practice or didn't cover and you say, okay, we're going to go ahead and put that in. Add that in. Add that in. I remember one. I remember one time I read a read a thing on Coach Coach um, Brian, and he was the he was the um, coach of Alabama, and uh, he said, and anyway they were going to play this ball game and the, the kids playing and defensive end, and he said in the first play of the game he says they're going to throw this lot. This guy's going to run down field. He's going to play. The, he's going to run down field and the quarterback's going to throw the ball down there. You gotta stop that play, okay? He said, I told you and told you. First play of the game, and that's what the other team did, threw the ball down and so forth, that's no one. The kid, the other kid, he caught the ball for the team, went in, scored a touchdown with somebody else. Bill Bryan starts screaming at his defensive player, I told you and told you. And the kid just standing there crying, he looked at him and said, but he said, Coach, we never practiced. Oh, yeah. We so, had the words, we didn't yeah, have the action. Yeah, he said, we never practiced that. Huh. It's kind of like it's kind of like what I was telling you before about the about the going in there and kids shooting layups, you know. And I think that's that's where a lot of the coaches who are very good coaches, I mean, who, who are very good players, they become coaches, you know. And it's a it's a situation of uh, you know they do a lot of this stuff and in instincts. So everybody knows how to do this. Well, everybody doesn't know how to do it. Right, right, right. The great awesome athlete might not necessarily be the best coach because for them it's natural and they don't know how to explain it to exactly. another person they don't know how to break it down into the important details that's right and how to practice those things that's right well let me ask can you build an excellent team around just one extraordinary athlete i don't think so why well i think i think you got to have other good ball players now too now you know i i think uh uh, can can you have one ball player who's a, who's an exceptional ball player and be the leader and you know and uh, he doesn't have to be a vocal leader but he can be a quiet leader but if he's an extra athlete then he has to show this by his practice by his work and showing the other one this is how this is how I do it so forth and so on from that standpoint yes you can build it. But to, but to have one extraordinary ball player and have the rest of them that, you know, they're not really that good, not you, you know, you're not. I don't think you're going to go that far. Okay. You know, because there's, I remember there's, I remember there's uh, kids and uh, I remember playing against coaches in uh, basketball. You know, they'd be out there and they'd say that this one kid is really really good, so he's the only one I want to shoot. So they set up everything where well that kid's not going to make 40 points. No, you know the rest of them have to have to score not too. So, but 
Yeah, can that kid who's a, who's an exceptional one, he can be, but he also has to be a teacher and a leader and you know and all that kind of stuff, because then the rest of them have to look up to him and say, "What well, we can really go." Can can one of those can one of those guys carry you a long ways? Yeah, but I think it has to also generate. I'm a team coach. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a team coach, not an individual coach. You know, I believe in doing things in a team concept. In fact, I remember one time down here when I was when I was coaching basketball down down here in, in um, junior in uh, JV level or something like that. It was it was a thing of well, he's not developing individual ball players or and I'm sitting there thinking. I'm not here to develop individual ball players. I'm, I'm here to develop a team, and so we're going to be a team that plays, you know. And uh, every kid's going to shoot, you know, and all that kind. Of, it wasn't a thing of de to develop one player and let the rest of them all go, you know. Okay. So, what are the key ingredients then to developing a great team? Well, first of all, you got to have players who are dedicated and have the goals, and and they want to do it. You know that was that was the thing was with the kids over over at Granville because the the history was there and uh, and uh, well although it's been quite a while since they've won anything but they had won four and that by when they had old ones but they had the desire and they had the interest and they were willing to work hard not just at practice in fact in fact when I first went over there it was kind of exciting me because the other place he's a coach and got down with practice. You were the last one to leave the field. You got over to Granville, the coach would end up being the first ones to leave, and the kids were still over there working. You know, I mean, they had the desire, and they had the interest, and they had the, you know, the sense that they could do this, and you know, they were just, they were just really, really interested in everything else in it. You know, so um, the interest has got to be there, and they got to work, and you got to have your your leaders not moving ahead and so forth and that. And I never realized it until I got over to Granville over there too that you had to have seniors. Seniors had to be your leaders. Mm. Seniors had to be their leaders because they had they had to show the way and so forth and that, you know, so if, and if. not and not just not just on the field. The 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 seniors were the ones who took care of the field, you know, cut the grass, you know, and Measure the things out. We got the diamond ready, you know, before the first game of the season. We out there with the with the cutters for the grass and all that kind of stuff. The seniors, they'd pick out a day and they'd go out there and they'd be the only ones there working in that. Can you teach people to have a better work ethic? Yeah, I, yeah, you can do that. How do you, how do you teach people? Well, I, th I think I think you have to. First of all, I think you have to outline what your goals are. And you have to outline how you are going to do this, because I know, like, whenever I, uh, whenever I became head coach over Granville over there, of course, I, I started doing that a little bit down here. I go to the baseball clinics, and you know, you pick up ideas as to what to do, and uh, of course, then you, you know, and and you work on these individual things and that, and and you'd have to explain to the kids, this is why we're doing this, you know, why. Why are we doing these mechanics? You know, because you're going to get short hop. You're going to get there. It's just like that inside. I told you about the pop-ups. You know, you you got to be able to do these simple things. Like, so you get them to practice that practice. That. And I remember kids from West Bend here even say that afterwards. They said, 
he would have taught us a lot about that because we did mechanics, we did this stuff here and all that. But you, you got to teach them the, the plays so that they. So when I guess you can best sum it up by saying that if you're going to try and teach them to play the game, you want to have it where there really are no surprises. Nothing's really going to happen in this game that you didn't practice or you didn't expect that it could happen. That's pretty comprehensive. That's pretty cool yeah. if you can get there. Yeah, but like I say, that's where you, you, look at your, you look at your game and you say, this happened. This happened in third inning and you talk over the kid, we're going to practice this. We're going to practice this, you know. And so that, in it, so that something happened, it'd be like, well, we practice that. We know about that. We know this rule. We know that rule. You may have already answered this, but, but uh, just to make it super explicit, in your mind, what constitutes leadership? Uh, leadership can be on and off the field. It has to be your, uh, you know, I think one of the things, let's say you're going to practice, he, he's one of the first ones there. You know, and if the, if the coach wants something, he's there to say, okay, I'll go ahead and do this. But, you know, they're, 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 they do this stuff that ahead of time, and they show it to the rest of the kids. This is what happens. This is, uh, this is whatever, and you do do this, and you know about this stuff. Everything's going to be in place, and it's going to become easier. And that, to me, that that's leadership all the way through. You know, that they, they just... Nothing, nothing is going to happen that you didn't practice, and they're going to also point that out to the younger ones, the faster ones, and so on. That's why, I, that's why I still say it was very easy a lot of those years to get to the state tournament because those kids were there. They knew what it took, and they looked at the seniors, what they, what they went through, and the other ones went through, and then they'd go through it, and they'd go through it, and they'd go through it, and be, it just would be like old hat. So kind of what I'm hearing is the older ones need to develop the hearts of the teacher and teach the younger ones, but then the older ones also sort of need to adopt the, hey, I'm an apprentice to the head coach. That's right. I am his apprentice. I wonder what he needs. Maybe he needs this. I'm going to go get it for him. That's right. And there also has to be somebody who will listen to the coach and he will be a coachable kid. Yes. You know, and... and uh, yeah, we haven't talked too much about the stubborn blockhead athletes, but I'm just well, assuming from everything else that we're saying that the stubborn blockheads ultimately, I don't know, they, they just probably don't make all that great of athletes. No. Well, it, they, they, if they're really talented good, that can happen, but you can, you can also teach them by, <laughs> by example. So I remember, I remember uh, Kelly Roeder. Kelly Roeder was a, was a good athlete. He was tremendous pitcher and only had him for like one year, really. Well, only did have him for one year, you know, as a, when I was head coach. But I remember we were down there and uh, we were down at uh, West Sioux playing and he was out there pitching. And anyway, uh, I used to always tell the kid, don't throw him, don't throw the kid like three fastballs right in a row because he'll, he'll get used to it, change pace, do something different. But then I heard from his dad, his dad says, they get two strikes on right away. I like to get that third one in right away and get him out. Well, then I realized Kelly was listening to his dad. But to make a long story short, we were down there and Kelly Roeder's out there in the mound pitching. And uh, anyway, he throws two fastballs, 
strike, strike, you know, and he had done that. Next, next one he throws in there, boom, base hit, another fastball. So, and then I think he did that later on in the game too, and the guy hit one clear out of him. And I yelled at him, the guy said, you ever gonna learn? <laughs> and he just did kind he? of, he did just, did he, he learn? He just kind of, hmm, kind of looks like that. I don't know whether he ever learned or not, but you know, I used to tell him, I said, you know, you can't throw them three in a row, they're gonna get used to it. You gotta change the stuff or not. He must have learned something, wasn't he? Oh, your, yeah. winning, your winning pitcher in 2000 at the state tournament? Yeah, yeah, he, he was going that one. He must night. have picked up something oh, from yeah. you eventually. Kelly, Kelly was, a, was a super athlete. He was a hell of a pitcher. He was really good. But, uh, you know, also he had a, he had a stubborn, stubborn streak and everything else. And I remember one time, too, after, after a ball game, we were all huddling together. Or oh, he was pitching in a ball game there against Reynolds and St. Mary's, and he was breezing along with them. Last up in the he started getting hit hard, and, and of course he wasn't changing, and so they hit him hard, and he ended up losing. Well, then after the game was over, we're, we're down here, I'm talking to all the players. Horace Kelly rode around, he's out to run his laps. He wasn't even going down with us. So after I was there, Horace Kelly, I said, you know, Kelly, if I'd had you in West Bend, I said, we'd have really, I'd have really went after you or whatever. So, I really got mad and angry at you, but I said, being over here, I don't want to do that. I don't want to yell and scream and be a holler and coach and everything else like that. So I said, do we understand each other? He goes, yeah. Well, yeah. We kind of talked about the yelling and screaming thing a little bit earlier, but that was kind of a nice end to the Kelly story. Um, the yelling and screaming thing, I don't know if coaches still do that today or if Some times... Some do. You think they even... I don't know if times have changed. Some of them do. I think... I think the yellers and the screamers are the ones who are out there first in the beginning and so forth. And that you know, and uh, maybe they'll I, never I was, go away. I was the I was the yeller and the screamer down here at certain ballplayers, not not the whole team. It'd be like certain individuals. What what I, causes that? Is it just that you're not making they, any headway with them? Yeah, they're not making any headway, and they won't listen to you. I say you get frustrated. Yeah, I had one I had one kid out there. <laughs> Down here, he always thought he always thought he knew it all. He wanted to pitch. He wanted to do that. So he knew it all, but he won't listen to things. So, anyway, <laughs> we went up to Algona and played. Algona Garrigan played up, and he was out in the mound. He was getting hit all over the ballpark, and I'm just sitting in the dugout. He's getting really getting busted. He's really getting hit hard, really hit hard. And he's looking in the dugout, looking at me like, "Take me out, take me out." I walked out the mound. And I said. Well, Kelly, I said, you're going to have to, you know, it wasn't Kelly. I said, you're going to have to work and bear down, whatever, and get out there. I walked back to the dugout and left him in there. What happened after that? I can't remember. I, he probably got hit hard. But anyway, <laughs> I, just, I just thought, you're going to learn your lesson. Okay. Well, it's been my experience in life. Some people learn their lesson and other people never learn yeah, their lesson. I mean, but, but the yellers and screamers are not good coaching that because... You also learn that in the classroom. Teachers that are yellers and screamers are not good teachers. No, I don't think so personally. Um, I, 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 I would classify, I would classify uh, not yellers and screamers, but I would classify as a thing of maybe coaches have to also learn too. They have to learn that you're out there to teach the kids, and the kids, and if you win the ball game, the kids won the game. You know, and it, whereas before, it's like uh, if they win the game, that's glory for me. If they lose, it's your fault because I look bad because I'm the coach and so forth. 
that has to be turned around. It's got to be turned around. The kids won the ball game. You know, they're the ones that worked hard, you know, and, and they've learned all their stuff and that. And you figure that, well, if you, Matt Ellsbecker used to always say that too. He says, if, if, the, if the kids, he said, you played your best and you lost your thing, lost your game, and he says, just tip your hat to the other team. They were a better team that day. But you, but you didn't make all kinds of mistakes and so forth. They were just a better team that day. And you hear that every once in a while in sports thing. They say, well, today they were a better team. I, I think what you're saying is really fundamental. I guess what I'm hearing is, is that the ideal coach, the best coach, is the one who is coaching for the benefit of the players. That's right, exactly. Well, and, and uh, I guess that's servant's leadership. The idea is that the leader might just be invisible to a great degree because all the glory goes where it's supposed to be. If this were, a, I don't know, a director directing a play, nobody notices the director. Everybody notices the actors and right. actresses, and right. that's that's what needs to happen. Or I suppose, like if an author is writing a book, people don't notice the author; they notice the story. That's kind of what I guess I'm picking up. Yeah, and, and and there's a lot, there's all sorts of things like that in life. It's just like with the umpires, you know, the good umpires is the ones after the game's over with. Hey, who are your umpires? You say, I don't know. Yeah, the best umpires are invisible. I don't, I don't know who the umpires were. They do a good job. Yeah, they did a good job. You know, it's the same way with the coaches. You know, you walk out there and say, who was the coach? I don't know who's the coach, but boy, those kids really played good ball today. Yep. You know, that's why I, I really adopted that philosophy. Nobody told me that, but I, one day I just picked that out of the blue and put it in the paper over, over there. And I said, well, you know, our job is done. Our job is done, you know, so we talked everything we know. Now to go play the game, you know, we can't do anything. I know I picked that up from, from from Vince Lombardi. Okay. Vince Lombardi, because he was coach of the Green Bay Packers. And Bart Starr, who's our quarterback, and they won the first two Super Bowls. Bart Starr says, practice, that guy was thing, but he said on the days of the game, he was the most useless guy. We didn't even need him around. Oh, that's great. You that's know, because great. He taught him everything, and he said, you know, we didn't know he was around, but boy, I practiced. I own the practices, so you better listen. It's kind of cool to think of Vince Lombardi as being useless That's in right. a certain context. But Bart Starr was the quarterback, so he mostly said we didn't name him around the days of the game. He's the useless guy there. I, I want to ask another question about athletes. When you are coaching and developing an athlete from the ground up, are you hoping to develop an all around? this guy can play any position, or are you looking for whatever niche this person belongs to? You try, you try, to, uh, you try to identify their talents and gifts. <coughs> you try to develop their talents and gifts and put them in a position where they can play, where they can play that game. Uh, I can pick out, pick out a couple of incidents that. <laughs> we, had, we had one kid, well, he was a, he was a shortstop, and, uh, and anyway, and the coach says, "What?" He says, "He's he's a good shortstop. He'd be the shortstop, and and he was he was going to be a junior in the first year that I was head coach over there. And we started him out at shortstop. Well, we got to one ball game, got to about the last inning, seventh inning against Sergeant Bluff. He made two errors out there and cost us the ball game. And he mm. was a shortstop. And Matt Alsbecker said to me, Matt Alsbecker was gone then because I was head coach then." And uh, said, some guys said, well, you got to allow, allow your shortstop and I'd have one error a game. And I thought, 
one error a game, you got a 40 game schedule of 40 errors? I don't think so. Right. That's way too many errors. You can't do it. Well, then, and watching him, uh, he could not go right. No, he couldn't go left. He couldn't go left, is what it was all. That's who I was. Anyway, he, he, the, the, one, the one way he couldn't go, so I moved him over to second base. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. He, 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 he could go left, but he couldn't go right. So put him over there, because every play at second base was going that way. Yeah. He was a phenomenal second baseman, but he couldn't, he couldn't play shortstop. So then, and then I put Dean Meese at short, and of course, then the other one said Dean Meese, or some, Luke Orky came up to me and told me, he says that, Matt Elsbecker said, told Dean Meese he would never play a game of shortstop. Well, when I had him, he played there for three years. Wow. You know, and he was all around just really, really good and so on. But you get him in right position. Had another kid who wanted, I only want to play outfield. I just want to play the outfield. But he couldn't see fly balls, and I thought, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> so where did he end up? I'm just well, curious. Well, he was, he never really played varsity ball now, but you know, okay. he's going to play in places that have to be in the infield or some deal, but you know, it just. Okay. Rode the bench. Giddy up. That's right. Riding the bench. But okay. that, but you know, that, and you take professional sports, take professional sports like professional basketball, and actually get the coaches out there. The most important thing that coach has to do is to get this player here to play against this other guy over here, you know, because that's his talent. If you, if you can try and find out what their talents and gifts are, you know, and then put them in that, put them in that position and so forth, and that, you know, then you can. Uh, I guess what I'm hearing is the all-around athlete, the guy who could play first, second, and third base, shortstop, catcher, pet, uh, pitcher, catcher. This is a very, very rare unicorn. Yeah, I mean, you, you get in high school level, you get, you get, you can get a super athlete. He can probably, he can probably do those things to a minimum degree. In that, you know, uh, in, in somebody, he's good enough to be ahead of a lot of the other now. But if he's going to climb the ladder now, but even in high school level, you know, you try to get, the, you try to get the kids to play this one position. You, you have to niche sure. down. Sure. Got it. Got sure. it. Okay. Well. I read this book, or actually listened to, I don't know, five, six podcasts. I was just fascinated. This author wrote this book called The Captain's Class, and he looked at all of these teams over a 60-year period all across the world where they just had no business winning, and yet they would win, and then they would win, and, and just on paper, you know, my team is inferior to your team, and yet we would win. We would beat you, and in one of those cases, they pointed out that the team captains that these people would get, it was called the captain's class, almost universally, you just couldn't give those, you couldn't get those people to give the rah-rah pep talk. They just thought that the rah-rah pep talk, the we're going to get you psyched up, we're, we're really going to like get you revved up, you know, they just thought that was worthless and pointless, and I'm just wondering, what is your opinion on the rah-rah pep talk? I would agree with what you said. I don't think Ron Rock pep talks do very much. Okay. I mean, it, it, it's too, uh, because it can become an emotional thing, which is all right, might last that little bit, but the biggest thing is to me, you have, you've got to put reason into it. you got, you, you got to put reason in so you can think what you're nagging up here naturally as to what you're doing. And I think a lot of it boils down to doing your job. And I think the, the biggest thing is you got to, you got to put the fear factor out, 
you know, and, and say, that, well, these guys are really good. You know, I, I always remember in service, we were at Fort Riley, Fort Riley, Kansas there, and uh, we were going to have an inspection, and they said just big generals that were going to come in the next day and so forth, and they're going to, so we had to really shape this place up, and everybody got to be tip-top and all this stuff. This one kid's going around, you know, he's, you know, he knew what he was doing. He did this stuff ready, doing this stuff ready. And he says, you act like you're not very nervous or anything like that. He says, you know, he says, that guy's going to get up in the morning, he's going to put his pants on the same way I do. Right. So it's not going to be any different. So, so just do the best job yeah. that you can in the first place. And we don't need a big pep talk you to know, do a good job. You know, and, and just like uh, uh, you mentioned the deal about Bobby Knight and everything else before, Bobby Knight, and, and, I, and I learned that a little bit from, from Bobby Knight because the first couple of years I was coaching, when I coached, it was like, we're playing these guys here. They're really good. These people are really good. So he's like, oh, my gosh. You know, but then afterwards, you, you, you know, Bobby Knight says, I never coached against the other team. Hmm. You know, I never looked at the other team and said, they're really good. He says, I'll coach my kids over here and we'll do that, we'll do our job and so forth now, and then we'll let her take care of it. And that's the way I tried to, I, I thought about that's what I tried to do over at Granville and over there. Because, you know, you sit there and you say, well, you're playing first base today, do your job. Do what, that's why with, with all the statistics and all the, you know, all the mechanics and so forth, and that's, you know, guy hits ground ball down, you pick the ball up and walk over and step on the bag. Pick up the ball and throw the ball at first base. Do your job. You know, okay. and, and you do your job and you don't make very many mistakes now after the game's over with, you say, well, we didn't really make any mistakes. We did this here and so forth and we won. But if you did your job all the way through and you lost, and you sit there, well, they, they, I guess they have a better team and so forth than I did today. But I learned that not to really coach against, you know, against that because, and that's something I think you really have to teach your kids now because, like, like for example, if we went down a state tournament, and you're playing key of Lansing, and you're getting down there, and you know, and they're saying, these guys are number one, oh, this, that, that. And you sit there and say, oh, you know, let's take them out in the back and just, let, let's just play them in the practice field that over here. I remember that first year when we won the state title down there, and it was about the third inning or something like that, and I walked out to the mound, and, and because the kids got into a jam, and... Uh, I walked out there and, and they're coming kind of I said, you know guys, I said, we're only in the third inning. I said, we're only in the third inning and the score is just, you know, so let's just relax and let's just play the game and have fun and do your job and so forth and so on that and of course walked out of there and the rest is history. Kinda yeah. something good that I think that you said that I'm really picking up on is the rah-rah speech is kind of pointless because maybe it's falsely optimistic, but then you also kind of went against false pessimism, which is, you know, getting so bent out of shape over the other team's reputation. That's right. And just assuming that, well, they have this reputation, so therefore we're doomed. And I guess it's putting rationality back in the driver's seat because we're just not going to let false positivity or negativity wipe us out. Right. And it's also a thing, too, that, you know, I think I think the raw, raw stuff can be that if you go out there and you know these people come in are really good and you know you haven't really won a ball game yet, they go out there, rah, 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 everybody walks out of the gym with them and they sit there and say, 
We know we're going to get beat back. Oh, right? my gosh. Well, we're then, gonna... I, yeah, it just feels like total hypocrisy. That's right. It just feels like, who are we trying to fool with this rah-rah happiness? You know, I, I remember one time to playing junior high basketball, too. I was coaching, no, I was coaching JV basketball. And I had surgery in my hand here. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't be there. So they said a <coughs> guy down in school, he took the kids that night and they played the basketball game, but they ended up, they lost. I'm not saying it was me, but the next game we're playing and we're, we're going to play TR down here in JV basketball. And uh, I was in there, I was in there talking to the kids and saying, well, is this what we're going to do and explaining everything. We're, Two two one zone press. What are we gonna do and so forth and that? So then we walked out. As we was walking out, the one kid said, "Let's not be embarrassed." <laughs> I said, "Wait a minute!" I said, "Everybody back in here." Back, I took them all back in the, in the dressing room again. Since I said, "Be embarrassed," I said, "If, if we're going out to the idea we're gonna lose and be embarrassed," I said, "We're not even gonna play. We're just gonna get on the bus and go home." I didn't come down here to until to lose this ball game or anything like that. I said, I'm down, and so we're going to do our job, we're going to do what we have to do, and so forth, that's no, we're going to press, and so, well, we end up, we won the ball game. In fact, they never lost the ball game the rest of the season. The only game they lost was the one that I wasn't the coach. <laughs> you know, and, and <laughs> but, great. you know, but, you know, the kid said, when we're walking out, he, that's what he said, I, so I, and I know the kid, too, he, he's walking out, he said, well, let's not be embarrassed. I, what? You know, gosh. You know, there's one other point from that book, The Captain's Class, that I really wanted to bring up, and it was this. They would say after the team won the championship, oftentimes the captain athlete, the senior captain, wouldn't even go to the awards banquet. They had one girl where they won the state title, and uh, she stayed in that evening and she did her laundry. Uh, and there were other people, same type of thing. Somebody went and visited their sick grandpa. Another person just said, I just hate these award banquets in the first place. And I, I'm not saying we should hate the awards banquet, but, but their mentality was this, I, I'm actually not doing this for any kind of recognition whatsoever. I, I'm doing this to play the best game that I possibly can and to serve my teammates and to serve my coach. What is your thought on the person who skips the award banquet so she can get her laundry done? I think she's being very selfish. You think she's missing out? I think, well, I think she's being selfish because, first of all, the fans want her to watch the ball game and they like what she is doing and so forth and that's, you know. And so what I'm saying is that, maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but as, what as I'm saying is the fans don't really count and I'm, I'm really pointing out to the fans how humble I am and how, you know, how this stuff doesn't mean anything to me and so forth and so on and that. It means a lot to the parents out there. It means a lot to the community out there. It means a lot to the kids and everything else out there. So for you to skip that, it's like saying, well, this isn't important to you. It isn't important to you. Okay. You know, there, you take these kids over there whenever we want to stay title and want to stay tournament, they'd have to stay over there in which they take the pictures and that out of the ball field. These little kids come running over there. They have all these balls. They wanted everybody to sign them. So we're sitting there autographing all these baseballs or t-shirts and everything else like that. And we weren't doing that for us. We were doing that for those little kids. Okay. So if we're going to be in the limelight, maybe just really kind of keep in mind 
this really isn't about me being in the limelight. It's really more about me serving. Yeah, that's right, because these people feel good about the fact that, you know, that, hey, our town of Granville, we won the state title. I can walk around and tell you how bad we beat you guys and all that kind of stuff like that, you know. And who's the right feudal? I don't know who the right feudal was, but boy, we sure kicked you guys out. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I want to apologize to the author of the book and to the of the athletes if I misrepresented, because in my mind, the way I'm remembering it was, is that these people who didn't really enjoy the awards banquets were really just so focused on the team and on the sport that they really were humble. Um, so if I misrepresented it, yeah. by the way I phrased the question, I just want to apologize. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to put them down and down with you, but uh, I just, it's kind of like you know, I think a lot of people don't like to go to the awards banquet because it's. You're going there and you're sensing, uh, you know, so forth. And that's just like pep rallies. I never cared for pep rallies. But you go because the, the kids are all there and they like this and they want to be associated with that. And you, when it's all over, it's just, it's just like, good, now I can get out of here. Honestly, some people love them. And, oh, yeah. uh, and well, since I was raised by you, I probably wound up liking a bunch of the same things you like. And so mm -hmm. I was just never the biggest fan of the pep rally. I, when I go to these things, I try to put myself in the shoes or the mindset. I try to think like a, a, an actor or like a novelist, and I try to put myself in the, the shoes of the person who loves these things, and then I try to appreciate them on that level. Yeah. So, so from that standpoint, but it's, it's not natural for me. It's just, I guess it's like sit-ups. Those aren't natural for me either, but you I know, try to do them. You know, a lot, a lot of this stuff is, if, if, you, if you look at it, a lot of it is God-given talents, you know, that are given to you, and you want to, you know, and then plus he gives you the interest and the, uh, maybe I'm getting off track here. No, no, no. But he's given, he's given you these talents, and plus he's given you the interest and the joy and everything else with it, you know, and it, gosh, you just can't, you, you just can't separate that or just can't take that away, and you know, it's just a, such a wonderful thing, and that's, you know, and it carries over and everything else into life, and that's, you know, but it, it's just really, uh, and yet, you know, it, you develop a real friendship now with these other people now, too. That's one thing I found out with sports, is that I really learned, you know, all the way through high school and, and, and teaching and everything else, you know, you get to know, other people get to know you, and you don't know them at all. The other day, I was in Emmitsburg. Just probably off, off track now. But I was in Emmitsburg there, and uh, um, I walked, I was going to buy some Jarvis or some deal and, and get a carton of milk in Emerson. I walked in the grocery store there, and as I'm walking in, there's one guy, one guy said, Hey, Mr. Webker, how the heck are you? And so forth. Then he started talking baseball, and he's went on and on and on. I'm sitting looking at the guy, thought, Who are you? <laughs> I, I, I think I've seen him before, and I think, then he said, uh, did you have Brett Hansen? Yeah, I said, Brett Hansen started, the, started the one game in the championship game, I think it was 2003 in the state tournament. Anyway, he was the Amherstburg coach. And then he said, did you know Al Sutton? Yeah, I said, I knew Al Sutton. He coached at Amherstburg for a lot of years, and I said, I coached against him a little bit, umpired and everything else. And but you, you run into that, and that's what sports Sports has really done a lot of that, and you know, you could tell the guy was really excited because he saw me and so I'm sitting there thinking, well, 
I don't even, I don't even know you. I, and I didn't want to say to him, what's your name? <laughs> I didn't want to do that. You know, but, uh, well, it builds an incredible community. Oh, yeah. And it's permanent. I mean, it yeah. just never really goes away. Um, let me ask, is it worth it to play a team that you're going to beat by 10 runs? Yeah, it is. But because at the time, you don't know if you're going to beat them by 10 runs or not. You know, and, and so, but like I say, uh, in fact, a lot of times, I think it's harder to get your kids up if, you, if you're playing a weak sister, you're playing, I shouldn't probably use the word sister, but if you're playing somebody that's weak, it's harder to get your kids up with that because it's like, well, this is going to be a cakewalk, you know, so you're just going to go in there and so forth as, you know, and uh, you got everything to lose and nothing to gain. Because if you do win by 10 runs or whatever, they expect you to do it. But so, and you can learn because in, in all those games that you, that you do that stuff, it's the thing that I'm going to do my job. Okay. And you can also take players that otherwise don't play very much, or you can take pitchers that don't, that don't pitch much, and you can say, okay, I'm going to throw this kid against him. And, so okay, so, so a good coach is really going to see the opportunities that exist. Oh, yeah, to, to, to develop. It isn't a thing to go out there, well, I'm going to beat these guys by 20-some runs. You know, you're not, you're not going out there with that attitude. You're going out there with, you know, play everybody and, and uh, <coughs> I'll play this, I'll pitch this one guy here or do whatever you can that with them. And, but you, know, you also play hard and it's not, not to let up. Not, so you always try to tell the kids, you know, the score is zero to zero, mm. no matter who you're playing, so play your best and so forth. Yeah, you can, you can learn from, from playing against those guys. Okay, let's flip it around. Is it worth <coughs> it to go play a team that is, I don't know, maybe they were undefeated last year, they look indestructible. Is it worth it to play a powerhouse? Yes. Definitely, but it, it also depends on the sport. Let's say it's a, if it's a physical sport, for example, like let's say it's football and you have little kids and you're playing against giants, that's probably won't do you any good. In fact, you probably get a lot of kids hurt. But if you're playing basketball, if you're playing a baseball game that, like that, yes, you definitely can do it. And, and once again, once again, it's just the same thing, you know. You say to your kids, you know, they might, they might be, have the big reputation and the big name, all this kind of jazz like that. We got five seniors in our ball club here. They only got four seniors in their ball club. So you're competing against four seniors. We got five seniors. And you go out and do your job and let's see what happens and so forth. And then if you win, you know, that really builds up your confidence. And plus it, it shows you, well, I did my job and we didn't make any mistakes. And lo and behold, we end up with one. Okay, okay, very cool. Now, you've had to deal with the press an awful lot. Um, how do you teach athletes to speak to the press? I would say you just, you just, you know, the kids, the kids are smart enough to, uh, I think they're smart enough to say what, you know, how they feel and, and the questions that are asked and that. Plus, I think it's good for them to do that because that's, that's, uh, you know, that's part of their deal with regards to being an athlete there and they, they get to see the other side and then they get to see their name in print and get to read their stories and so forth and that and they sit there and say, hey, that's really good and 
you know, I remember the kids come up to me after, you know, after I'd had an interview with the press or somebody or other, and come up and talk to me and say, boy, that was a really nice story about you yesterday in the paper. That was really great. We really liked that. You know, so, and, and it, it's good for them. It's good for their ego, and, you know, and, and it's just plain good. So I, I take it there's never really been a case that you can think of where some kid said something so outlandishly foolish, you know, to the press that you had to pull them aside afterward and say, gosh, you really got to be a lot more careful when you talk to the reporters <laughs> there, Rufus. No, we know, you, you, I, you might run into that in a college level. I don't know, we don't run. I never ran into that in high school level. Okay. So far. Not well, so. with coaching, what is the easiest part and what is the hardest part? The easiest part about coaching? Yeah. The practices. I think I think that's the easiest part. You know, you got you if you if just like anything else, if you're prepared you know, you have the you have your uh, outline what you're going to accomplish, what you're going to do, and your time lapse what you're going to do, so forth and that. It's easy and plus it's fun, and the kids are learning, so forth and that. So I think that's I think that's easy. It's, it's like, but if you're not prepared, and you're not ready, and you're and you going to practice, and what are we going to do today? Then it can become very hard. But if you know what you want to do, and you and you know, you feel good about it, you're excited about it, and you sit there and say, hey, you did that right, and, you know, so that's, that's fun. The practice is, it's fun. What's the hardest part of coaching? If that's the uh, easiest, if practices are the easiest, what's the hardest? Mm, let's see once. Well, I, I think the hardest part about, about coaching is if you run into kids that are very, you re, that you really can't teach them. Okay, Unco uncoachable yeah, kids. Yeah, that they really, you know, they, are, they already know it all and, you know, and they really don't want to, they really don't want to learn and, you know, and, and yet they think they know it all. You know, I think that's, you run, if you run into a bunch of kids like that, you know, it has to be a bunch. It can't be just one or two because if you have one or two like that, you know, you can kind of win them over. Yeah, well, yeah, because you, the other kids too, also can show them. You know, I remember, I remember one time when Kelly Rhoda was a senior, and he was out there and, and he was up to bat in batting practice, and he was getting disgusted and mad because this little freshman or somebody was out there throwing batting practice and. And he wasn't getting him in there, and Kelly got mad and going to. And we just said to Kelly, "You know, Kelly, you were a freshman one day too." And, and that changed things. Yeah, and that's that little kid out there throwing his practice. Says, "Kelly, you were a freshman one day too." And then you know, he yeah, walked and, off and said, "I guess I was." Yeah, you, you, and Kelly, Kelly would understand, you know, and so forth, and that's you no. Know. <laughs> and I remember one time too, you know, his dad we were playing a game and. Kelly was pitching and somebody made an error out there and I think we were playing Sioux City East which was a 4A school and anyway his dad was and he ran so forth and then he's saying something going on and on you know and <laughs> we just thought we just thought you know afterwards just saying well whenever Kelly makes an error then is that all right or what you know we were just thinking that you know uh -huh. but uh, we never said anything to Tom about it but we might have said 
You might have said something to Kelly, you know, well, you were a freshman once, too. Huh. Uh, so. Okay, so let me ask. <coughs> how but, do, uh, but I, I think that's the hardest part is when you have it, is when you have kids out, a kid out there, and you can't, and he's not coachable, you know, and, and, and you run into a whole bunch of them like that, you know, then that's a... That ever happened to you? No, I never had a whole bunch like that, but you'd have one or two. Of course, you have one or two, you sit there, you know, and put him down on the end of the bench and you don't talk to him, whatever. I mean, try to pull him out, and then when he makes some mistakes or some deal, you, you can kind of point out to him, well, if you might try this, things might change. It might be better. You kind of have to let him cool down oh, yeah. a little bit first. Oh, yeah. You're, you really can't correct people's mistakes when their blood is up. Oh, no. Well, that, that was another one we always had, too, that if a kid really got excited and, and he's really angry, upset, and so forth, and I like that, he, we had a thing that was called, Elwood Becker came up with that, and I thought, where does that come from? But then afterward, it made a lot of sense. He says, just flush it down the stool. Huh, okay. Just flush it down. And, and I remember one time I walked out, and this this one of the bunkers kid was all, huh. I walked out and looked, and I was talking to the whole works, and mostly his and so I just looked at Bunker and said, you all right? And he said, yeah, coach, I'm fine. I'm fine. Got over it. I'm fine. Shook yes. it off. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. So, okay. Okay. Um, personally, I think it's really obvious that some people belong in some jobs and they absolutely do not belong in other jobs. And I am so glad that I was not a coach because I think my stress level would have been stratospheric. And I'm just wondering, how did you either keep stress under control, or maybe this wasn't even an issue for you? How did you relax? Uh, was this even a problem? Uh, you know, it was funny. The uh, biggest problem all the time was, uh, was like the first game of the season, because you really didn't know what you had, what you were playing so far now. And I used to always say, you know, after you won the first ball game, and then you sit there and say, ha, we're not going to lose them all. Uh -huh. You know, we're going to win one. And, you know, and after that, you just, uh, I don't know, you'd rely afterwards, you know, I might have a, you used to always have a beer or something afterwards, but it was, it was always a pretty kind of a, it was a joyful situation. Um, if you lost, as well, you figure out why you lost, and you know, and they had a better team that everything that that, that night there. But uh, I can I can honestly say it was never it was never really that stressful. It wasn't stressful like life can become stressful, you know, with with other situations things because there wasn't much with that. And even in those years, like when we went to the state tournament or something like that. Uh, to me, like I say, I don't think there was, I don't think there was much stress there. People used to say, are you nervous? And I say, no, not really. We're really going to win or lose. That yeah. is such a mellow attitude. It's just, well, it's just unbelievable to me personally. I think that that's great that you're able to do that, but this is why I'm not a coach. So I guess congrats to you, Dad. I think that's awesome. I did. I just, I remember walking down the street in Granville and people said, how do you feel about a nice game? I said, well, I was really going to win or lose. Okay. I, I'd like and to... I'd go home and sleep good that night. Okay. 
I like to back up and just ask some big picture questions, you know, sports and life. Yeah. People always say life is like sports, sports is like life. And some people say, yeah, it's just a game. It's not that important. But I don't know why, but I kind of think it's actually in a certain way ridiculously important. Um, and I think games are just part of the flesh, blood, and heart of life. Do you think games are representative of something larger, or is it just a game? No, I, I don't think it's just a game. I, I think it is a, a thing of life. I think it, it, it's for your confidence, it's for your uh, faith, it's, you know, it's for developing talents, and developing talents of the kids, and, and developing the ability for people to get along, you know, and to uh, also to accept, to accept defeat, you know, and, and uh, that's all part of life. Um, but you know, hard work pays off, and you know, and, and what you put into it. Uh, I think it also points out to you that what kids you would hire and what kids you probably want. Mm, sports, you know, sports yeah. shows you who to hire. I, I think it would because you know, like, like I'm, I'm talking about. Let's say you, let's say you got kids out there that that could be good athletes, and that, and but. Um, you're going to hire them to do a job now and you say well let's clean up the field you know so this kid runs over and gets a rake and he's doing this doing that so forth and then this one kid he's always in back of the shed so nobody knows where he's at so he doesn't have to do anything and you sit and you, you kind of get the compliment like you kind of get the thought of i never hire anybody i never hired that kid because he did, you have to hire somebody to watch him all the time to make sure he did anything. Even if he's a star performer? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, and because, you know, and so... Uh, but wouldn't you hire I, him I because he's a star performer? He's difficult, but he's a star performer? Well, he might be a star performer there, but if you're going to hire him to mow your lawn, maybe he might skip half the grass and come up straight or not show up or... Whatever. I, I guess. I guess maybe if he's a lazy star performer, that means he only does what he feels like doing when he right. feels like doing it. Right. Right. You know, but I, I, sports sports teach you a lot about life. You know, you you, you know you you can be knocked down and you and you build yourself up, and even if you you know even if you win, you can be a gracious winner. You know, and the, the other. The other kids tried hard, and your kids tried hard, and you end end up winning that day that day there, and you know there's a lot of camaraderie with those kid other kids, and they get along with the people, and so they just. But it, it it teaches you to work hard, and you know it teaches you to look at life. There's going to be winners, or there's going to be losers, and so forth, and that, and yeah, to lose. To lose, like a, before, if you're in a state tournament and you lose, and you don't get to the championship game, there's kind of an empty feeling there. But you just oh, sure. say, "Well, we got, we worked hard, and we got as far as we got, and all that kind of stuff." Can you can you walk out of those situations? This is what I've been wondering about because there were certain games where uh, I was a spectator and my team lost, and there's been certain games where I was a participant and my team lost. And in certain cases, you are just emotionally devastated. And the only thing that I find comforting in the situation is if we did our best. If, oh, we, yeah, if, we, right. did, if we did our best, then actually I, I wind up being not that... I mean, emotional devastation literally lasts about 30 seconds. If we did our best. See, I, I, really, I really truly feel 
because one kid didn't obey what he was supposed to do, that we didn't win the state championship in 2004. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, the kid no, is, I, I the know kid, the story the kid, that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the kid is, you know, and if I, and I look at a situation like that, and if I had to do it over again, if I had to do it over again, right on the spot, when they went out in the field, he said, you're not going to play. Right, because he blatantly disobeyed orders, right. and then he made an out, and then that cost you guys. Right, you know, and, and uh, although the next inning or some deal, he, he did get a double or some deal, but we ended up losing that. But, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, though, that he... Uh, well, yeah, and, and, and out... If I, if I had to do it over again, I'd sit there and say, you're done, I'd put somebody else out there. Well, because he cost you an out, and I don't know if people know this, but uh, according to Moneyball by Michael Lewis, according to the math nerds, the statisticians, the out is actually the most precious resource in baseball. Yeah. More than the run. And so this kid cost you an out by disregarding orders. Yeah. And... Uh, Cost us once, cost us some runs now too because what, what he didn't do. See, we had to, we had the bases loaded, nobody out, and never scored. So you know who knows what could have happened that inning. Exactly. Maybe you could have scored ten runs. That's right. Because if if he had done what he's supposed to do instead of what he did, you know there was another the, there was another time too when uh, when a kid did something he wasn't supposed to do, and that was that one. That was in a different year. We won the state title that year, but uh, I was I was so mad. I was going to go in the dugout and just say, "Well, I'm not going. I'm not even going to coach the last thing. You guys go ahead and go out there and play. I don't. I don't care what the hell you do. Go do what you want to do. That's what you want. That's what you want to run. Go ahead and do it." Like, and Dave Hine came and he says, "Coach, don't do that." He says, "They're playing for the championship tomorrow." He says, "You just don't. You don't want to do that. Don't want to do that." But I was mad enough to sit there and said, well, that's what you want to do. You guys want to do stuff on your own? I'm not even going to show up tomorrow. I will say, statistically, I think you're coming out pretty far ahead because, so I've known you my whole life, obviously, and these are the only two stories I know of where an athlete disregarded. So in a 57-year history as a coach, I think you've racked up a whopping two stories where yeah. an athlete was just flat-out disobedient. That ain't bad, statistically no. speaking. Well, I had one more. Uh, oh, no. One more in the thing where, where I held the kid up at third base. He thought he could score. He kept going. He got thrown out at the plate. He was out. And one of the fans said to me, he said, he ran, he ran right through your stop sign. Yeah, I said he did. Huh. Okay, so well, we, three we, and we 57 lost, years. We lost, that, we lost that ball game, too. That We lost that one to... Mason City Newman, that was in uh, 2004, I think. I think this would be my advice for players then. Um, trust your coach. Oh, yeah, but, but also also from the coach's standpoint, if I had taken the first one, first one I'd done that, so you're done. You're done for today, you know, and I think that would have sent the message to the rest of them. Oh, for sure. So, But I don't think they were... But no, they were, they weren't they weren't difficult at all to coach them. But <laughs> the other ones, they, the other kids that come up, they talk to them about things. And I said, nope, I'm not I'm not going to change that. Dean Meese wasn't hitting the ball one time for quite a while, and I had him batting fourth, and Rackley batting third, and Dean Meese batting fourth, and and uh, Dean Meese says, uh, 
Coach, I'm like, she, somebody said, why don't you move me, move me farther down in the lineup or something like that so I see, get different looks because back and forth and getting all this other stuff and kind of, and I just looked at somebody and I said, you're not moving, you're staying right where you're at. Did it help? Oh yeah, yeah he was a hell of a hitter. I so mean, what, what got him out of his slump? I think he just realized the fact he wasn't going to be moved, so he might as well stay in there and step you know, up. Yeah, he was. He and Dean, he and Matt Riker, were, they were terrors at bat, and the, and the opposition knew it. They knew that they were just. And I put Matt Riker third because that way he'd get a lot of raps because if he's going to bat first inning, he's going to bat all the time. And then, of course, then Dean Meese right in back of him, you know, so he just. Uh, yeah, it was bang, bang. Oh, yeah. They it was were, good. They were terrors. Well, okay, let me ask this. I'm very curious about this. This, this for me, is the million-dollar question. People will say, okay, sports translates over into life. So you pick up all these skills in sports, like you learn hard work, you learn competition, you learn teamwork, uh, hopefully you learn honesty, all these type of things. Well, you'll see one guy learn all of that in sports, and then he goes off to adulthood, and he does all those same things. He works hard, he's honest, and probably is quite successful. And then you see the second person where things absolutely do not transfer over. That there's just, it's lost in translation. Nothing happens. The second person is a dud. And I would just really like to know, what is your advice for being the first person the guy who actually picked up the lessons from sports that you can pick up from sports versus the dud. What is, how can I be the, the first guy? Well, I would say, first of all, that he has to, uh, whatever he learned in sports, which was hard work and uh, being reasonable and having uh, realistic goals and, you know, and to work on things and, you know, that you would, uh, you would have hope and faith, faith and hope, and you know, and and do it. And you'd also look at the talents and everything else that you have, and 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 get into that. And I think it also you'd get into something that you enjoy and like to do, and you would end up being successful in that. I really believe that. I think the last thing you look at is say, though, is this going to make me a bunch of money or not? I think that's, you leave that, just leave that out of the picture. I think you have to look at your talents that you have and uh, God-given talents, and then you also have the uh, attitude of the interest in the thing, and then work hard in that interest and assume your responsibilities, and I think you'll be successful. You know what I'm really kind of hearing in your answer, and I, I just want you to correct me if I'm wrong, is what I'm hearing is, the first person who did transfer successfully from sports to life actually kept the lessons. Yeah. They, they, they put themselves in the right position and then they worked hard at it and they embraced it. But yeah. maybe the second person did not. Maybe they didn't take the time to figure out what the right position is and maybe they didn't work as hard at it as they would have done back in the athletic day. Well, I, I think, yeah, and I think a lot of amounts to too, isn't it? And the second one is a person looks at it and says, I want to get this job because it's going to make me all kinds of money. I think your goal right away is wrong. Oh, for sure. 
you know, and for so, sure. so and I'm all in favor of people making ten million. Well, yeah, but you, but you, you can make that by doing the stuff that you're good at and that you want to do, and you'll be rewarded and everything else for it. And of course, and not wasting it. But I think a lot of it is you have to, you have to look at your God-given talents that you have, and then pray about those things, and then do those things, and it should be enjoyable and it should be fun. Okay. So I have three more questions. My first one is, what should I have asked that I didn't ask? Can't think of any, Tim. Okay. Can't think of it. I get that occasionally. I probably write Well, I, I think, I, you know, where does God enter into this picture? And we've talked about that already. First of all, it's talents and gifts. And talents and gifts comes from God. And humility, everything that we have and everything that we do, you know, is, is, uh, is a gift from God. And we need to expand those and we need to work on those and, you know, know what they are. Because he's not going to lead us in the wrong direction. So I think that's, uh, I think that's a very big one. I think, that, and the older we get, the more I think we see that, and, and we'll try and do that. Okay. My second to last question is this: So a 17-year-old athlete has been with you for maybe most of his his junior high and high school career, maybe all of it. Let's fast forward this person to now he's 25 or 30 or 35, 40. What did he take away that is still with him today? What did he take away from, from having you as his coach? I hope that he learned to do his job, find out what his job was, because that was something I always preached there. And I also said to be thankful to God and also to, to use the talents and the gifts that God gave you and find out what they are and to work on those and to do those. I hope he, I hope he learned those. Okay. Those things there. It's beautiful. My, my last question, this is actually my favorite question, I love asking everybody this, is let's just fast forward and now you're 100 years old and you're sitting on the front porch of hmm. your house, which we're about 12 feet away from, and uh, mom is holding your hand or she's sitting nearby and you were surrounded by your kids and your grandkids and maybe at that point some great grandkids and somebody says grandpa what was the best thing about your life in terms of coaching what do you say i think the best thing about the life and the thing of coaching was when i got the message when i got the message from from God, when I was driving to Ayrshire for the graduation practice, so forth and that, and he said, go to college and coach. I think that was it. It was, it was always, that's always been there. There have been ups and downs and so forth and that, but when I went to college, that's what I went to college for. And you know, it was, it was but like I say, there was disappointments in that in there too, because I remember, <laughs> I remember down here, I'd sit there and I'd say, well, is all I want is one little trophy. Just one little trophy, that's all I care for. And that's not gonna happen. Well, then lo and behold, you know, here we ended up, I get the call from Granville and end up over there. and We win state championships and, you know, and uh, longest coach over there. And, and, you, and people, you walk around and, 
people see you and uh, you don't know them from Adam, and but they know you, and they start talking about. It. So anyway, and it all goes back to that. It all goes back to that point right back there. You know that go to college and coach. That's awesome. You know, and it's just really. It's awesome, Dad. Well, thank you so much. This is absolutely splendid. And uh, maybe we'll do this again. Good. And now, an outtake. It doesn't leave you because, like I said, I've been, I've been out of coaching now for oh, about eight years. Yeah. You know, and yet, every once in a while, you run into somebody, and they bring it up, and they start talking about this, they start talking about that, and it just... And it just all comes out. And she's like that guy the other day in Emmitsburg. There was a guy over in Algona the same way here a while back. He said, Lord, do you have a coach over? Yeah. And then he, then he starts talking about Garrigan. And he starts talking about this, talking about that. And my kids played here, and they did this here. Hmm. You know, and, and it comes up all over the place. Comes up. And I never ask these people what's your name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. The next episode will be on a Tuesday.